Welcome to Real Issues, Real Conversations, a podcast from Ohio Humanities. In this series, we explore democracy and the informed citizen. I'm Rachel Hopkin, and the focus of this episode is racial equity in media reporting. Joining me to discuss this issue is Mark Canute. Mark is a multi-award winning Korean newspaper journalist who has reported extensively on race, class, poverty, homelessness and immigration, not least for the Cincinnati Inquirer, where he worked for 25 years. Over 80 of the articles he wrote for the Inquirer are reproduced in his most recent book, Across the Color Line, reporting 25 years in black Cincinnati. Mark is now on the faculty of Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, where he teaches courses on journalism and social justice. Mark Canute, welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Rachel. As we're speaking, it's the 17th of September of 2020, and we're still in the middle of this coronavirus pandemic, and so we're recording this interview remotely from our respective homes in Ohio. I'm in Columbus, Mark is in Cincinnati. Mark, how are you doing during these testing times more generally? I'm well, thank you. We're very fortunate uh, working. Uh, My wife is working and uh, we're busy. We're healthy. And I wish that for everyone. Right, right. So I have been looking through this very interesting book that you've just published, Across the Color Line, Reporting 25 Years in Black Cincinnati. And the foreword from this book is from the Honorable Nathaniel R. Jones, retired U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit, Cincinnati, Ohio. And in his foreword, he includes mention of the Kerner Report, which came out in 1968, The report was a product of a task force set up by President Lyndon Johnson to explore the roots of and suggest remedies for racial unrest, which had erupted over the previous several years in different places and in different ways. And according to a recent article in the New York Times, it left scant doubt that it regarded white racism as the tinder igniting these episodes of unrest. Anyway, Judge Jones includes an excerpt from someone quoted in that report in his foreword to your bookmark. And he's quoting from somebody who's interviewed for the report who says, the average black person couldn't give less of a damn about what the media say. Most black people see the newspapers as mouthpieces of the power structure. So that was from 1968. Do you think that's still the case? To some degree, I think progress has been made. To what degree progress has been made, you don't know. What are some of the issues that you see in media reporting where there is not racial equity? What I would hear from my many years in the predominantly black communities of Cincinnati was that you only show up, you meaning the media, when there's crime. You hit and run and you don't develop any relationships. You don't know the full story. You know the negative. You know the police blotter. You don't write about life in the community. You don't understand the causes of poverty. You don't understand our perspective on police community relations. You don't understand institutional racism. And you're really only here for the sensational, for the the dramatic crime story. And periodically there would be formal complaints from a civil rights organization such as the NAACP that would say there's three types of African-Americans represented in the media in general, and that's athletes, entertainers, and criminals. And so there was a great deal of consternation, of tension, It was always there, but it would surface 
at times of a dramatic misrepresentation of African Americans in the media, or again, there would be situations like urban unrest and violence, which Cincinnati obviously had this past summer, but most notably in our history, our recent history in 2001, after the uh, police killing of an unarmed black man, Timothy Thomas, which led to federal intervention and police reforms here known as the Collaborative Agreement, which were signed in 2002. By that stage, you've been in uh, Cincinnati for almost 10 years. Can you tell us a little bit about your own background in reporting on issues connected to race? So I came here from, I was a writer-editor at the Raleigh News and Observer, and Cincinnati was always my second home. I'm a native of Illinois, and I interned as a sports writer at the Cincinnati Inquirer the summer I graduated from Miami, which was 1984, and I had a wonderful experience, and I wanted to come back and and live here. So I was fortunate to be hired in May of 1993 as a general assignment reporter And two weeks in, I'm given an assignment to create a series on race relations. At that point, and some people in Ohio may, you know, some of the listeners may remember this, the Cincinnati uh, Reds owner at the time was Marge Schott, who was a a white woman, uh, who was owner when the team won the World Series in 1990, but began using, you know, racially charged language uh, about some of her African-American players, um, and really would say very inappropriate, racially charged things. She referred to two of her African-American players as million-dollar N-words. She uh, said Hitler was good in the beginning, just very inappropriate, insensitive, you know, wrong things. And so that was really tainting the city's image nationally, um, with obviously one of the major institutions based here being the Reds. And at the same time, the previous Christmas season, December, the Ku Klux Klan received a permit to put up a Klan cross on Fountain Square, which is the major city center. And that was the first time that had gone up. And there was a great deal of protest. There were other incidents as well, but it began to reveal stilted, awkward race relations here. And not much coverage had been done. I was fortunate to be given the opportunity to go out and create this series. So I spent weeks and months gathering information, working with an editor, a very talented editor, Michael Roberts, who helped me formulate this six-part series, which was enormous at the time. It was a, an A1 presence. And that reporting and what I learned changed the course of my career because I learned how to be the minority and concepts such as my white male, straight Christian privileges, all of those things, especially my racial privilege, went from being a concept I understood to being a lived reality, and one that caused some pretty painful weeks of coming to terms with that. But it was a great experience and one that I reflect on in the book as life-changing for the better. Just having the opportunity 
to counter some of those complaints that were in the Kerner Commission report and that passage you read that I was allowed time and opportunity to develop relationships to begin writing a body of work that was fuller, was not just crime-oriented. It was a fuller, I would hope, and I have been told by many members of the community, that it was a fuller representation and understanding of the complexities that the quote-unquote black community, like quote-unquote the white community, is every bit is internally diverse and there is not a group thought in the black community. There is not a singular perspective or political orientation. And similarly to how there is everything in the white community, there is everything in the black community. There is a range of experiences and a uniqueness as well. Clearly the, the humanity, the shared humanity, but also the singular unique Black American experience. And I began to explore both simultaneously, the effects of segregated history, second-class citizenship, the unique place geographically that Cincinnati has, you know, where the North meant the South at the Ohio River, the importance of the history here for people who had escaped and found their freedom here from enslavement. Just a complex, deep, history and that affected the present. So I I had those opportunities and I took full advantage of those to the best of my ability. One of the things you mentioned in the introduction to this book, which is a very eloquent and illuminating introduction, and you talk about a lot of these experiences that you've just referred to, is you say that this metropolitan area of Cincinnati, which includes southwest Ohio, northern Kentucky, and southeast Indiana, is apparently the fifth most racially segregated region in the country. Um, I'm going to come back to that in a little bit, and I'm certainly coming back to your experiences, but I just want to pick up on something that you were talking about right at the beginning of your last comment. The comments by this lady in charge of the sports team were the comments of one person, but the idea of a Ku Klux Klan cross getting permission to be erected in the central square in Cincinnati, I can't even begin to imagine how that happened. It wasn't that long ago. Well, it was, it was, I believe the, the permit was, uh, granted because of first amendment rights, something that simple while it was only 28 years ago only. Um, but in the frame of history, not that long ago, perhaps we as a municipality didn't have the understanding that we do today. I don't have the direct recall of events, and I, I actually was in Raleigh at the time when that happened. But I do remember that in in reading the clips on that, that the city granted the permit basically out of its desire not to censor freedom of speech. Huh. Okay. I want to go back to something that you were talking about a little bit earlier, where you're you're writing this series of issues connected with race, and it's called A Plight Silence. And this was very early on in your career at the Cincinnati Inquirer. And you say that there were some very painful periods as you became aware of your privilege as a white man. Can you tell us some of those painful periods if you're able to share them, if they're not too painful? Because I think it's very easy to not be aware of one's privilege. And so I wondered if you could share a little bit on getting to grips with the knowledge of your privilege. 
Yes, I would hear stories from primarily African Americans, people born here, about the weight, W-E-I-G-H-T, the weight, the heaviness of their race that was inescapable. As I said in my reporting, I began to be the minority. I was either the only white person meeting with groups of African Americans, whether it was traditional civil rights organizations or a support group for black MBAs, you know, a very business-oriented community, people that worked at Procter & Gamble and General Electric and, you know, neighborhood groups, black churches. I spent a great deal of time in churches, not just on Sunday, but during the week for events and meeting with social justice-oriented groups within churches. And and I would go into neighborhoods and see groups of people and begin to strike up conversation. And I would wake up in the morning thinking about my race. And, you know, if you read Peggy McIntosh and other writers and scholars that have looked at white privilege and examined the myths that allow white people to keep institutional racism, privilege, at an arm's length and not think about it is this myth of white racelessness that white people don't have race or race experience, that we are the norm. And I couldn't help but understand in a new level what it must be like for an individual black person in this country day in and day out to have to venture into a world where you don't know and you have to brace for the worst for someone using the n-word someone even if they don't say anything thinking negatively about you without really knowing anything about you because of the color of your skin or the way you speak and so i began to think can i get away without shaving today can i get away without wearing a tie can i again perpetually 5 to 10 minutes late and those were all parts of my even professionally of my racial white male privilege and that those things were more forgivable and excused for a white person and many times not excused for a black person to do. So it was being very aware of my race and of the many symbolic and behavioral shortcomings that we normally can get away with and putting that in contrast to all the things that a black person in America can't get away with professionally. On the other side of it was the understanding that my racial privilege didn't reduce my effort, it didn't reduce me, it didn't reduce my achievements, yet it made me more appreciative of the additional obstacles that an African-American professional or an African-American person in any walk of life had to deal with. Were there any points in your career that you have become aware of unintentional biases that you might hold personally that are part of the 
culture that you were raised in, not part of something that you have consciously espoused? As a reporter, I think the unconscious bias is, as it says, it's lack of education or lack of experience and therefore false assumptions would enter into your writing or into your reporting. And as I tell my students, I'm 58 years old and I'm still learning. There's labels, there's boxes, there's stereotypes. And I do write in the book where I was interviewing in the Black MBA organization, an executive who she was with Coca-Cola, had been with Procter & Gamble, and she had told me she lived in Durham, North Carolina, and I had just come from Raleigh, which is, you know, right there in the triangle of North Carolina. And she said she went to college there. And it's almost painful, Rachel, for me to relay this, even though it's in the book, is I said, oh, you went to North Carolina Central, which is a historically black college university. And she goes, no, I went to Duke. I quickly apologized. I was blushing. I felt a burning hole in my stomach because I realized what I did. I assumed, oh, you went to historical black college university, North Carolina Central. And she graciously accepted my apology. And it's still, again, that that negative racial assumption that you make. The one thing that was interesting when I began after the series to express my interest in covering the black community, my reporting colleagues who were black were somewhat relieved that they weren't reflexively assigned as black reporters, quote unquote, the black stories, and were free to pursue their interests without the automatic assumption that, oh, you're black, you want to cover the black community. Speaking of your colleagues at the paper, one of the issues that often comes up when discussing this matter of racial equity in reporting is the lack of diversity in media organizations. So was the uh, Cincinnati Enquirer, did it have a very diverse newsroom? And I'm not meaning to call the Enquirer out on anything. I'm just guessing that it's fairly representative of newspapers across America. That's why I'm asking. Correct. And at the time, there was a, I believe it was called the All-American Project or Program, but there were efforts to keep the staffing in major metropolitan newspapers on par with the population. And Greater Cincinnati, I believe at the time, was 13 to 15% African-American. And we weren't. And I do remember our leadership at the time trying very hard to recruit African-American journalists. And our percentages would go up and down just like any business. But I do remember there being an effort and in the days before financial scarcity and layoffs and buyouts, you know, the 90s being that really last hurrah of newspapers as we knew them, that that was a a pronounced and legitimate concern, not just here, but the Enquirer being part of the Gannett Corporation with the flagship at USA Today. It was something that Gannett took seriously. One of the things that was a challenge is we didn't have consistently black 
representation in the management ranks. The Inquirer didn't have a racial minority as an editor until 2015 with an Indian-American, Peter Badia, who's now editor of the Detroit Free Press. You mentioned Gannett just now, Gannett, which owns the Cincinnati Inquirer and many other newspapers across America. One thing I noticed recently, which pertains to the media and race, is that Gannett has taken the decision to stop publishing galleries of mugshots on the understanding that doing so can perpetuate negative stereotypes. Another significant move in this regard by a media organization was the New York Times decision to capitalize the word black when referring to people of African-American heritage. And in an article they uh, published about this decision, they quote Destiné Charisse Royal, who was one of the editors consulted on the change. And she says, my thought was that a capital B makes sense as it describes a race, a cultural group, and that is very different from a color in a box of crayons. And other news organizations across the US and elsewhere have followed the New York Times example. Are there any other moves like this that you can think of that have taken place recently, or are there any that you would like to see taking place? It's a great question. It's, it's giving me an awful lot of power. Um, I think my frustration, and, and I'll start it this way, is going back to the, the passage that you read from the Kerner Report, is everything now is metrics. Everything is measured in terms of reader interest, topics, amount of time that a reader spends with a story, where a reader exits a story. This is because everything's being read online, right? You can actually measure this, right? Yeah, you can measure everything. You can measure everything. And even though there's still revenue being earned by print, mainly because of advertising, not because of circulation, stories, unless it's protests the level of what we've seen after George Floyd's murder or, you know, the Louisville Gannett paper, the Courier Journal um, with Breonna Taylor's story, unless it rises up to that level, metrics show that generally stories out of the black community or that touch on topics of serious concern to blacks, unless there is a, it's framed in conflict, weren't that on par of, say, other stories that were more oriented to white readership. And again, I had editors that understood that my last three and a half years at the Inquirer, I didn't leave until August of 2019. And and there was an understanding that there were stories that were just too important racially that they had to be covered. But I found that the stories that I covered needed to have a higher degree of conflict. And what I mean by that is kind of like our coverage of the Muslim American community at times. You know, whenever there is a an act by a splinter group that identifies as being Muslim, even though they're, you know, again, you can say the Klan is Christian because they claim to be Christian, and yet we don't label the entire Christianity world as terrorists the way many people will see a splinter group and then label all Muslims, but that's an aside. It is the same way we would cover the Muslim community on its heels, meaning that we we didn't go there to understand the normal life. We didn't incorporate sources 
people who were Muslim American into our normal coverage as experts in their field, whether it be medicine, law, politics. And that the only time you really saw much about Muslim Americans in the paper was, oh, there was a, a bombing in the Middle East or Europe, and you would call the mosque and the imam would denounce the terrorist act as being really not about Islam. Actually, this is something I was hearing about on a discussion I watched on YouTube recently, which I'll post a link to in the notes that accompany this podcast. This idea of not just contacting people of color when you want to ask them about something that pertains to matters affecting the racial group of which they form a part, but asking them about anything, you know, asking them about whatever matter they might be an expert on, whether it be law or cooking or literature or whatever, rather than just making this effort to find experts from diverse backgrounds when the subject at hand happens to be a subject that is particularly inflected by race or ethnic background in some way. So Mark, I think so far in our conversation, you've included a lot of implicit advice for fellow media workers. Is there any advice that you would like to give media consumers? That's a great question. In fact, I'm teaching a course at Miami this semester, and it's a journalism course called 101. But it's not so much how to be a journalist, it's to understand journalism and how it's done and its societal implications, its role in democracy. And one of our texts is a book called The Elements of Journalism by Bill Kovach and Tim Rossensteel. And one of the concepts we just touched on in, in our class last week was the concept of journalism of affirmation. And clearly there's print media or electronic written media that fall into this. But the most clear examples are Fox News on the right and MSNBC on the left. And it not only tells the viewer what it wants to hear, it's also financially successful. I mean, that's really the driver is, okay, what, what can we sell? Well, we can sell people journalism of affirmation. So we can use the example of the riots and the social unrest that followed the George Floyd killing this May. If you watched Fox News or read right-leaning media, the world was ending. There were gangs of violent African Americans and their sympathizers, white sympathizers, out on the street damaging, killing, harming, threatening. And if you saw it from the other side, it was that this was almost holy and it was justified. And I'm not taking sides on this, although I personally do have a side. But I'm trying to respond to your question. I think the consumer in, in this country has options, so many options of sources of information. And while that's good, we seem to consume only one source, that we don't find legitimate sources that may challenge our thinking, add additional information, uh, you know, I used to tell sources, and this was a compliment, it was a serious compliment, that you've complicated my thinking. 
and that meant you were learning. And I'd see a lot of us consuming media that doesn't complicate our thinking. And I think it's reflected in our, clearly reflected in our politics and the connection between media and voting is now being pointed out. And you don't have to look hard to see, you know, clearly that the country, you know, the United States has never been, never more polarized in its history. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really very illuminating having you on the podcast. Thank you for your interest. Again, my guest today was Mark Canute. You can find out more about him and his work, including his latest book, Across the Color Line, Reporting 25 Years in Black Cincinnati, in the notes which accompany this podcast. I'm Rachel Hopkin, and this is Real Issues, Real Conversations, a podcast of Ohio Humanities, which is the state-based partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. The views expressed here don't necessarily reflect those of the National Endowment. This program is part of Democracy and the Informed Citizen, an initiative administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils. The project seeks to deepen our knowledge and appreciation of the vital connections between democracy, the humanities, journalism, and an informed citizenry. Many thanks to the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for their generous support of this initiative, the Pulitzer Prizes for their partnership, and to sokolovskymusic.com. To learn more about Ohio Humanities podcasts and other projects and programs, please visit ohiohumanities.org. Mm-hmm.